Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, I have a lawsuit case here in which a therapist was successfully sued. No. And as you know, I have some sort of sick pleasure about, <laughs> about reviewing these with you. So, it's a, call it a fetish of mine. Uh, what do you say we review this case in which a therapist was successfully sued? Sure, let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am uh, apparently your your fellow fetishizer. Um, I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle. We're old friends from school. Do you like it as much as I do? No, no. This stuff makes me nervous. Why do you think I like it so much? Um, schadenfreude? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be a part of it. I think another part of it is similar to watching like car crash car, videos yeah yeah is that oh, you watch those right i do yeah yeah or police cam videos or something because i feel like a part of the satisfaction is i get to see how to remain safe like there are certain like i've watched probably hundreds of car crash you know dash cam videos where they witness a car crash yeah and it's never like death because it's on YouTube. You know, there's certain things that they don't allow on YouTube right. from what I gather. But there are certain things, certain things that people do that are very common to car crashes, really bad car crashes. You know, like a very common one is um, when you're in traffic, for example, and you're bumper to bumper, but the lane next to you is is free. And you just, you're stopped and you're like, oh, I think I'll get in the other lane. And you just get over. And, but t both people are kind of, so I learned two things. One, if I'm stopped, you really have to make sure, because someone could be moving at like 60 miles an hour. And I have to make sure that no one's really far back there. Two, if I'm driving next to one of those stop lines, I got to slow down to like maybe 20 miles an hour because I have to, quickly react yeah. if someone suddenly pulls out. Right. So there's all these like little tips that you'll sort of pick up. Anyway, I think when I read these cases of therapists being sued, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's how you avoid that. Right. It also, you know, in graduate school, when you learn about ethics and when you take continuing education, there's always this knowledge that all of us can be sued. We yeah. all have to have malpractice. Yeah. We have licenses. There's a reason for all that. Uh, and so there's this sort of amorphous threat. This it, It's like walking into the darkness and wondering, like, what, you know, what monsters lie beyond the veil of my vision. But if you just turn on the lights and you're like, oh, it's a frog <laughs> um, <laughs> or, you know, whatever, it, it, it suddenly feels much more safe. It's like, oh this is exactly what happens. And here are the consequences too. Cause one yeah. of the things that I actually often learn and I often tell my supervisees is that even when you look at some of the more horrendous cases, the consequences aren't actually as bad as you probably think that they are. Yeah. You don't go to jail The the payouts are actually not that high. They're small for whatever reason malpractice against therapists is some, you know, it's like $50,000. It's not like surgery or something where it's right. millions of dollars. But, you know, you have to carry, like, my policy is $2 million, $4 million. Right. Right. You have to carry that much uh, 
But, so it makes it look like, yeah, wow, like, oh, like shit. $3 million of malpractice insurance right. every year. Right. It just seems so like it, 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 it's like, well, if the fence is that far out, it, it must be indicative of the sort oh, of cases that right. you get. But it's far higher than it needs to be. Yeah. And guess what? You know, the insurance companies like that sort of thing, right? But the... Um, uh, so I, I think that it's, it's, it makes me feel a lot safer, safer. to yeah. actually read this. Story. Anyway, actually this episode is just going to be for patrons of the podcast. I apologize for going so long without mentioning that this teaser. is teaser teaser. Yeah, this is a <laughs> teaser. And I'd usually have these sorts of episodes be patron only because they're technical and a lot of therapists subscribe to the podcast. It's sort of like a continuing ed kind of thing. Anyway. Uh, so if you want to hear the full episode, you have to be a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. You become a patron of our podcast. You get access to this episode along with hundreds of other patron exclusive episodes. Uh, more recently I did 17 hours of patron exclusive episode content on attachment theory. I really loved making that those episodes and I really thought it was really good work, but I had no idea how uh, useful or helpful or how well-received it would be. It's the by, by far the most well-received thing I might have ever done in my life. Wow. In some ways. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew it was good because it's very useful to me. And, yeah. and But I've done other things on this podcast before thinking it was it was going to be like bigger. Yeah. And so I learned my lesson like, well, you just never know. And, and it's – but yeah, like – the attachment series deep dive was a big deal. And I, I have people coming up to me and just saying like, it changed my life. Yes. And I'm not saying that to, to bolster my thing. I'm saying that attachment theory itself, once you really get it, yeah. it is life changing. Yeah. Once you really get attachment theory, it, it affects everything. Like me and Bob right now talking, there are attachment theory concepts that will occasionally pop into my head that will guide me in my ability to um, have a meaningful life, to uh, know my own reactivity, to yeah. guess at Bob's reactivity, to tend to both of our attachment needs, which are happening all the time. And so if you want to learn more about that, become a patron and listen to the attachment deep dive. Uh, so that is that. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. Love you so much. Okay, so this is this is a case that my malpractice insurance sent to me. HPSO, Healthcare Provider Service Organization, I yeah. believe. Do you have the same malpractice? No, I get it through the other one. CNA? American APA, American a something something. Oh. Uh, HPSO case, they send me these, uh, and I love it that they send it. And so I thought I would just, uh, I've, I reviewed it and sort of made it more easily understandable because sometimes they're not, you know, written that way. Okay. So the total incurred is what they say is greater than $9,600. So not quite $10,000. And this was the monetary amounts uh, monetary amounts represent only the legal expenses paid on behalf of the insured psychologist. So I don't know what that exactly means, but the malpractice paid for about $10,000 of legal expenses for, um, you know, the defense of this psychologist who was sued. Mm -hmm. 
So, okay. Um, well, did the plaintiff win? Uh, yes. Okay. All these cases that my malpractice sent, sends me are when a clinician, one of their insured, uh, one of their customers is successfully, successfully sued. sued. Yeah. Did they say what the award was in this one? Um, did they say what the award was? Yes, they did. But uh, we'll get to that in a okay. second. Fair enough. Um, so a client, female, a woman, she's a client in this case, uh, in her mid-40s who experienced panic attacks and suffered from mild agoraphobia. So you have a woman, anxiety, and she goes to therapy. The insured counselor is a male. This is the psychologist who was sued. It has two licenses, both as a psychologist and as a marriage and family therapist, similar to me. I don't have a license in psychology, but I could. And so it'd be very similar to me. Uh, This psychologist, marriage and family therapist person, guy, treated the female client on and off for several years using traditional psychotherapy and biofeedback until the client moved away from the area. Approximately two and a half years following their last face-to-face session, so they they had some kind of, so so that's it, that's notable right there. It's like on and off for many years, you know, which is fine. There's nothing unethical about that, but it's just kind of notable. And then, but what, what sort of red flag immediately pops up when you hear that? Nothing. (laughs) Well, well, to me, what I, what I hear is a lack of boundary around termination, potentially. Like if you're on and off and, and that's the arrangement that you have with this client, what, you know, if, if like you do five sessions in one month and then you take six months off and it's understood like, well, she'll probably come back. And then what happens if you go for a year? Is she still your client or is she not your client? You know, are you still responsible for her care or has that been terminated from the last date you saw that You're person? It's just not clear. Right. Yeah. And sometimes what can happen is a client could, for example, kill themselves and then you could get sued because you didn't clearly say, look, I'm no longer monitoring you as, a, as your clinician because I'm not seeing you. So just no client, understand, I'm, we're terminating the relationship. If you want to re-engage, then you can. There's no talk about this. I just thought I would asterisk that. Got it. Um, anyway, approximately two and a half years following their last face-to-face session, the client's family contacted the counselor because the client was having a panic attack, I guess, in the moment. The counselor talked the client through her crisis over the phone with the encounter lasting about one hour. The counselor did not bill for this service, which isn't, you know, that crazy, right? I mean, what do you think about that? I, yeah, I, a lot of counselors don't bill for that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. So let's say you have a client that you were treating that had anxiety and then two and a half years after the last time, like out of the blue, boom, you get this phone call and you decide to take it, I guess. And it's your client's family whom you've never talked to. And the client's family like, so, you know, uh, Jane's asked us to call you because she's having a panic attack right now and she really needs your help. Mm -hmm. Will you talk to her on the phone? What would you do? Yeah, I'd talk. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems rude not to. Yeah. But what's what's the risk there ethically? Well, it's muddy, I guess. Uh, Muddy how? Um, I don't know. What is the risk there? 
Well, it's muddy because the client might expect that they can call you anytime or the family and that right. you're this crisis uh, panic attack talk downer. Right. Which is, I'm guessing, not what any counselor wants to communicate to the public. No, it's also, there's some problems with that as a treatment mode because it actually has the potential to reinforce panic because we're not addressing it um, in a systematic way to actually get it down. We're just responding to it when it's hot. Right. Eh, not the best way to go about it. Right. So as you're saying, it's not incredibly strange for a therapist to care and to do something, but it opens a door that you could address. You could say, so just let you know, yeah. I, I can't do that uh, again. Right. I, I did that that one time because honestly, I was, I was really concerned about you, but I don't want this to become a habit because I, I want you to know that I, I'm not really available like that. Yeah. So if you want someone to talk to I want you to call these people instead right. who are set up, you know, like the crisis line, that kind of thing. Anyway, the client continued to keep in contact with the counselor's office by calling and speaking with the counselor's office manager with whom the counselor also shared a romantic relationship. Okay, so here's where we get into the, the beginning of the end for this counselor. So the client continues to call so that the, the psychologist has an office manager and uh, he is in a romantic relationship with her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nothing wrong there. I mean, a little little sticky to have, because I wonder if the office manager is the employee of the psychologist. So that, but, you know, there's nothing strange. Um, for the podcast, for example, I have, I have a romantic relationship with my wife and she works for the podcast. You know, there's nothing, yeah. it's mom and pop operation kind right. of thing. Um, and the client was talking with the office manager. Um, so not, again, nothing necessarily wrong there. I'm wondering what they were talking what, what about. What they talk about. Right. Yeah. Cause what would you have to say to an office manager other than scheduling or something? Right. But it, they make it sound like it was kind of supportive checking in, but I don't know. Yeah. Several months later, the client invited the counselor and the office manager to join her and her husband on a cruise. So what would you do there? What if, what if Colleen worked for you, your wife, and for whatever reason, Colleen was talking with one of your clients kind of in a supportive social way, and then your client, who you haven't seen in years, but you've had this phone conversation with – invites you on a cruise, what would you do? I'd say, no, thank you. I really appreciate you thinking about me that way. And that feels really good. And um, I see myself as your counselor and I want to keep things real clear and straightforward and simple. And everybody knows what everybody is. I mean, I wouldn't say it in this kind of language, of course, but, but um, uh, I, I know. Thank you about the cruise. Yeah. Did, did they go on the cruise? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when I like to say, whenever I review these cases, is that I just think of the phrase in Forrest Gump, stupid is what stupid does. <laughs> but to me, the, I don't think I'm actually using that phrase right. I'm not even quite sure what it means. I guess I'm too stupid to know. But what I think of is like when you're dumb about one thing, you're dumb about a lot of things. Oh, yeah. And when you make one ethical mistake, like allowing your 
office manager slash girlfriend have a social phone relationship with a past client that indicates that there's something wrong with the way you think about ethics and your responsibility or yeah. your education or yeah. your or there's and that's not going to be isolated that won't be the only thing you do you're Great going point. to do lots of things yeah. you know so um and the there's a lot of different roads to to this slippery slope which is um narcissism for one like if you just think you're entitled or you've got it all under control or you don't need other, you don't need stupid ethics books, you know? Oh, you mean a therapist blind spot like that? Right. The yeah, therapist yeah. is narcissistic. Right. The therapist might also be like psychopathic or uh, Bob just dropped his phone. I hope it's okay. You have yeah. a pretty hefty uh, case on it. So oh, yeah. it looks like it'll be okay. It's bulletproof. Um, like is it? my ethics. No, just, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, there probably is one out there. It's like bulletproof. It's like Kevlar. Yeah. Uh, so the, um, uh, what was I saying? If you have a blind spot, like psychopathology right. or, um, well, so, so narcissism is one and another one is, uh, psychopathy yeah. being on the scale. And a lot of therapists are actually naturally on that scale because you have to be somewhat psychopathic to become a therapist because at least, you know, 5%, because you have to be willing to break a lot of rules in society you have, to, you, know, you have to not care per se about the conventions of of culture uh -huh. because being a therapist is automatically against culture yeah. just from the start. So um, anyway, so a lot of different roads. And so that personality doesn't just manifest in one behavior. It manifests in a lot of behaviors. Uh, so, yeah, they went on the cruise with the ex-client and her husband. The counselor did not reimburse the client for the cost of the trip. So I think the client was really rich and the client and the client was like, come on the cruise. And the counselor, so the counselor got this free cruise, you know, for, for the trip. Shortly after returning from the cruise, the client invited the counselor and his son to stay with her and her husband at their home. What would you say if your client asked you and you know, one of your family members to stay at their home, what would you say? Same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, no, thank you. stupid is what stupid does. The counselor agreed, and the counselor and his son stayed at the client's home for three days. So so I, what I'm reading between the lines here, I think what the counselor decided at a certain point was, well, it's an ex-client, yeah. and... I'm guessing also the client must be really rich in order to be able to pay for, you know, the counselor to go on a cruise. Right. The fact they're going on a cruise to begin with, I guess. And the counselor might be like, it's kind of cool to have rich friends because they pay for things, you know. They have a nice house. They have a pool, you know. And sure, they used to be a client of mine, but, you know, now we're friends. Mm. Now, they're not saying this in the case, but it's clear that the counselor considers this former client to be a friend. The personal. They have a personal connection now. Yeah. Yeah. Used to be a client, now a friend. Yeah. And so the counselor agreed. The counselor and his son stayed at the client's home for three days. During this time, the counselor conducted biofeedback sessions with the client in her home and provided couples counseling to her and her husband. Wow. Wow. So that throws out everything I just said because clearly the counselor still considers himself to be the family therapist. Yeah. So... So during that time, while the counselor's 
you know, staying in this former client's house, he reengages in treatment, not only with her, but with her and her husband. Well, it's a lot of hats just by itself. I mean, bizarre. Yeah. Like, can you imagine? No. Staying in your client's house. No. Waking up in the morning, like having some toast and then doing family therapy in the, yeah. in the living room. Yeah. Like, Jiminy. The counselor did not bill for any of these services. I wonder why. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. At the end of their visit, the client gave the counselor a check for $600. Nice. Which the counselor would later say he considered to be a gift and not a payment for services rendered. Nah. Nah. That's just a trick. That's a legal trick. I mean, yeah. stupid is. Well, do you buy it? No. No, it's a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'm guessing was, again, at the time, the counselor's like, I'm fine. I'm psychopathic. Everything's okay. And, you know, this is light couples counseling. This mm. is light bio. You know, I've done biofeedback for other people before. It's just a thing you do. And I, you know, sure, we had a conversation about their relationship. And, you know, I'm just a friend. I'm helping them out. Sure. She gave me 600 bucks because... I'd like to pay my bills, but you know, and then, and at the time probably considered it to be kind of like a payment for services. But later on when he was being sued, sued. he was like, no, 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 that was a gift. Just a gift. Yeah. And, uh, okay. About one month after the stay in the client's home, the counselor began employing the client at his office where she eventually took over the role of his office manager. Oh, wow. During this time... <laughs> The counselor was going through a divorce with, you know, the, the other office manager, uh -huh. I'm guessing. Or maybe the office manager was, the first one was an affair? It's not clear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I'm guessing that's what they're saying, because why would you say romantic relationship with your office manager instead of married to your office manager? So maybe this guy was, oh. you know what I mean? Anyway, during this time, the counselor was going through a divorce and told the client that he needed money to help him with his legal expenses. <sighs> the client wrote the counselor $5,000 check to help pay for his, a divorce attorney. Although the, so again, this is, um, is this a loan? I don't know. Although the counselor said that he had ethical concerns about accepting the money, after having a discussion with the client, he ultimately decided to accept the $5,000 as a gift. I just love that. Although the counselor said he had some ethical concerns, he ultimately accepted the money. I mean, dude, you're so far down the road. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've already fucked yourself so hard. <laughs> Your employee is paying you now. <laughs> exactly. And it makes me wonder, like, if the office manager, the new, you know, the client office manager friend was so rich, she took the job just out of a favor or something. I don't know. It just seems weird anyway. Yeah, right, right. Why? Yeah. Well, you know, anyways, keep Being going. close or something? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Several months later, the counselor terminated the client's employment oh. at his office and repaid the $5,000 gift the client had given him. So, again, reading between the lines, I'm guessing something, some conflict happened or something. Yeah. And the therapist, and maybe there was even talk or the therapist was worried about being sued. So he gave the $5,000 back because he was worried about some kind of problem. 
Shortly thereafter, the client filed a complaint with the State Board of Psychology alleging unprofessional conduct. Yeah. And uh, she just walked up like, you know, Shaquille O'Neal to the the very short relative hoop to the body and just slam dunked that ball. Um, in addition to the counselor's failure to maintain appropriate boundaries with the client, the board also discovered that the counselor had in improperly disclosed confidential information about the client in discussions with her husband. So breaking confidentiality. Right. The counselor discussed her panic attacks with her husband and detailed what the client had told the counselor about fights that occurred between the client and her husband. Mm. The investigation also revealed that the counselor billed the client's insurance for 11 face-to-face therapy sessions, some of which some of which were not face-to-face sessions, Ooh. but were conducted over the phone, uh. and some of which seemed to have never occurred at all. Oh, wow. The counselor did not have records of any of these sessions, making mm. this case even more difficult to defend. So the counselor didn't even have records yeah. of these sessions occurring. Yeah. So he billed insurance without anything in his file. Yeah. So just just rack up the stupidity. No records of sessions. Uh-uh. Billing for sessions that never happened. Uh-huh. Billing for sessions in a fraudulent way that aren't actually accurate to what you did. Yeah. Um, having a... a phone conversation with a client that you know without any kind of follow-up of like look that was a one-time thing it's i'm guessing allowing your lover (laughs) who i'm guessing is you're having an affair with to be friends with one of your former clients go on a cruise go to the house bring your son conduct therapy off the record on them involve the husband accept a quote-unquote gift uh, ask the, your former client, now employee, for money. Like, it's just... Hire your former client. Hire your former client. Uh, or current client, who even knows? Yeah, right. Well, the, right. The counselor was ordered to surrender his licenses, both for psychology and marriage and family therapy, to the Board of Psychology, and he was ordered to pay the costs associated with the board's investigation, which totaled over $5,000, Mm-hmm. The total cost to defend the counselor in this case uh, exceeded uh, $10,000. So I think that the client didn't sue for damages. I think the client just sued, you know, f- to get rid of the license of this person. The ethical breach, not not something for herself. Right. Yeah. From the looks of it. So what's the... What what what's the final word on this case? Well, you know, whenever we do this, I always get nervous. Like, oh shit, am I going to see myself in the case? And then you keep talking, and I'm like, okay, I would never do these things. Right? I can't understand why or how, or you know, it's so crazy, and it makes me feel a little bit safer. <laughs> right. And I and I think that's an important service of these kinds of talks because. Yeah. You've been practicing for 25 years, and yet you have what I'm going to call an irrational fear of ethical problems, an irrational fear that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And it hinders, I think, our when we're afraid, it hinders our ability to operate. But it also, like, causes stress. And also, I think it makes us avoid learning about this stuff because we're like, well, I don't want to go there. of course. It's like, I don't want to look at my, you know... STI test results oh, yeah. because I don't want to know. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
And and when we actually expose ourselves to the to the reality is is that you have to you have to do pretty egregious things to actually be even complained about at all. And so and then especially to to be successfully you know sanctioned in some way or sued in some way. Yeah. And so wow. Uh, so that's important to know. Uh, the other thing is that the other gestalt here is that we operate in this paranoid world, our field, where people will say things like, it's unethical to have a Facebook page. Oh. Because when we don't actually look at the reality of the case law and the way that ethics boards and licensing boards and judges and juries actually rule, we have this, we sort of completely overshoot the reality. It'd be like, you know, we all understand what laws there are of driving, right? Like you see a stop sign and you kind of blow through it and a cop sees you and you get a ticket. We all understand that. Sure. But we also understand that if I pull up to a stop sign and there's no one around, no police officer, I don't have to come to a complete stop and there's no other cars around. Like it's just you Uh, it's three in the afternoon. California you slide. You don't see an, another soul. Yeah. Now you can do that a rolling stop for a right, but you know I do it left straight. You know it's like why come to a complete stop when I know that doesn't make any sense. So I know that even though I'm breaking the law, it's not really a problem because um, I'm not putting anyone's life in danger. Life in danger, and there's no police officer to care about this. Uh, this what I'm doing. So you're talking about flexibility of common sense or something like that. Yeah, and but a knowledge of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Like I know I'm not going to get a ticket and I'm not going to hurt anybody. Right. So uh, I know that breaking this rule is not actually harmful. Right. In fact, one could say I'm harming the environment by having my car to a full stop because I got to gun the gas a little bit more in this tiny little way. Okay. Um, so. Uh, Bob got a good smirk out of that one. Yeah, smirk. <laughs> He's justifying. Um, and But when it comes to ethics in our field, it's like we're all, no one knows where the cops are. No one knows how they rule. No one, you know, and, and so. What is a stop sign in this case? Right? Well, so the analogy to me is people don't even drive. Yeah. They just stay home. Yeah. Because they're like, well, you know, yeah. if you drive, you know, thing, bad things can happen. And sure. I'm just like, it's. Once you learn the rules and the way the system works, there's a lot of fucking room to move where you're not going to get burnt and you're actually not going to harm anyone, too. Right. You know, because there's, there's, it's like, um, uh, uh, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, I find that most people have in our field have just this paranoid sense and and they will dictate that on other people. They will... They like, will say, like, you can't have a Facebook, Facebook page, yeah. which is just crazy. Or you can't have a podcast, for example. Also crazy. It's unethical for you to have a podcast because it's a dual relationship and it's, it's too much self-disclosure and da-da-da-da. Oh, That's yeah. just not, I don't understand why anybody would make a stink. It's just crazy. It's like you can't have a private life. You can't have a personal life. You can't have other pursuits. I mean, what the hell, man? Well, because people don't understand what actually would happen, you know, because in theory, having a podcast could be unethical, like it's possible 
Just like it's possible if you run a red, if you run a stop sign, you're going to kill someone or kill someone else or get a ticket. It's possible. But, but, but the circumstances need to be considered, right? I'm in the middle of nowhere and there's no cops and there's no other cars and it's daylight. I can see fairly well. I can roll, you know, most people, yeah, "Yeah, that's fine. But like, so people say like, well, it's possible. It's easier if you just stay home. It's easier if you don't have a podcast. It's easier if you don't have a Facebook page. It's easier if you um, never leave the house for sure. fear of bumping into your clients. Right. You know, uh, it's easier if your kids aren't on the soccer team because then other you know clients with their kids won't be on the opposite soccer team and play your team. You know what I mean? Like it's easier to to just do none of those things. Sure. I guess. Uh, but there's a but there's a reasonableness to all these rules that once you actually look at the case law, you realize, oh, you got to go pretty far down the road for yeah. something bad to happen to client and or to yeah. be sued for it. Anyway, like like the beginning of the case where he the the psychologist did not make it clear what his bounds around where treatment ends and where it begins and what is the nature of their relationship right now. That's pretty simple, straightforward and easy. This could have easily been nipped in the bud right here. Right. Right. Or or just educating your office manager about, hey, this is the limits. You don't just, you don't just socialize with my yeah. former client. Yeah. What, what are you doing? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Um okay, let's uh read one more lawsuit here and then we'll adjourn. Uh so I got these from a website called Documenting Psychiatrists Behaving Badly. <laughs> Oh, DPBB, yeah. <laughs> wow, he did that fast. Thank you. 1997, William Johan- Johannes, 31 years old, Ontario, Canada. He had a long history of institutionalized care. So this is the client, William. He was involuntarily committed after he became delusional and paranoid. Reports of him threatening his sister and others. Oh, well. So he's... He has some sort of psychosis, and he is making threats to his sister and other people. He's 31 years old, and he's been in and out of hospitals. He was released from the hospital by psychiatrist Rodika Stefanu. She found him, quote, appropriate, cooperative, and with a great sense of humor, unquote. So in the record, she's like, I'm going to release him from the hospital. He seems to be fine. He's appropriate. He's cooperative. And he's, he has a good sense of humor. Uh, she said that he said he had no intention of harming himself or anyone else, including his sister, because he had made those past. So she's like, do you plan on hurting anybody? He's like, no. Do you plan on hurting your sister? No, absolutely not. So she was convinced that he wasn't going to do anything. Apparently, he had previously threatened his sister. After being released, his sister took him in to oh. to house him. So, so just pausing here, this is not an uncommon scenario for someone with psychosis. It's not it's not very common, but it's not unheard of to suffer from you know periodic episodes yeah. of increased schizophrenia or bipolar yeah, psychosis. Symptoms. Yeah, and you become paranoid. You think people are getting into my head. They are saying nasty things about me. They are controlling. They want to control me. They're working with the CIA against me. I have to fight back, which might involve me actually threatening them and maybe even contemplating killing them or hurting them. Yeah. And 
then you go to a hospital, you get meds, you, you have less stress, and you return to baseline, which is to not have any of those thoughts. And then the psychiatrist looks you over and does, you know, for extended period of time, you seem okay. Well, you can't be involuntarily committed forever, according to, you know, the way we operate in the Western world anyway. Yeah. And often the family is the only where only place they can go because it's hard for them to hold a job. And so I uh, think, you know, God bless the sister for taking him in. So this, so, so far we're not actually looking at a, that strange of a situation, right? Right. So far. Yeah. So we, six weeks later, he became psychotic, which again, isn't unusual for him to have emergence of symptoms. Of course. And he murdered his sister. Oh God. He, he stabbed her 60 times before cutting out one of her lungs in the belief that she was possessed by the devil. Oh, wow. Um, so, again, this is on a website called Documenting Psychiatrists Behaving Badly. So there was a trial, and the jury awarded the family of the woman that he killed $172,000 suing the, the psychiatrist and or the hospital. Mm. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, well, just based on what's been said here, you know, we, we balance, um, um, civil rights with, um, protection of the public. Yeah. And it's a really tricky balance with a case like this. Even if you could predict that that person was risky in the future, like should they have symptoms again, you still can't hold them. According to the way we... The, the way we work now. That's the yeah. way we operate. Yeah, it's like you've made threats in the past. You've had mental illness issues right. in the past. You seem to be okay now. But, you know, on the chance that something's happened, you we're going to hold you indefinitely. Right. Like, what's the criteria for letting them go? Right. Like, is, you know... They just let John Hinckley go about, what, six months or a year ago? Oh, really? Yeah. He's living somewhere in the community, and he has some restrictions around him, some things that he has to do. He can't leave the state, et cetera, et cetera. But he's free. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, we live, John Hinckley, of, uh, who shot uh, Reagan, Reagan in 81-ish, and was trying to impress Jodie Foster. Foster. Yeah. He was obsessed with her. Yeah. And um, killed, or... No, he wounded uh, that fellow James Brady. Yeah. Yeah. In the, he shot him in the head, yeah. and he survived and is in a wheelchair. Yeah, and shot one of the one of the um, Secret Service guys yeah, and Reagan and Reagan. Yeah, and Reagan almost died. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the idea is is like, well, if they're not symptomatic, they're not given the presentation, and what we know from other cases, they're not likely to do anything because. If they're not paranoid or yeah. or delusional, they don't have the thoughts that lead them down the road of of wanting to kill someone. Right. So the the psychiatrist does this assessment of him, and he's um, you know demonstrating uh, that he's okay, and she's seeing that. And she's basing it on the only evidence she has, which is the observation of him over his time in the hospital and his present presentation. You know, actually, she could get sued for not letting him out. Right. Right. Now. In the state of Washington, we have this Peterson case, which is means you know that we're um, not responsible for our clients' behaviors, but we're responsible for taking reasonable actions to protect the public. I don't know if this happened. Oh, this is in Ontario, so obviously they're not under the Peterson case law as we are in Washington State. But 
there's just not enough information. What I suspect happened in order for, so there's two scenarios that I can think of. One is, is that the, uh, the psychiatrist was completely in the standard of care mm-hmm. and following the rules and did what you and I are describing, which is did their due diligence to make sure that everything was okay and safe and also had to respect that this person hadn't broken any laws and um, is allowed to go. And the psychiatrist might even be under policy from the state or the hospital. Like you can't keep people indefinitely just yeah. for your own fears of just what, it, what might what might happen yeah and so and then so let's say that happened and then the jury was just emotionally reacting because they were sad that this woman was killed right. and and looking uh, for somebody to hold accountable yeah, yeah. and so they sued um, successfully right the other possibility is that the psychiatrist didn't do enough to account for the possibility so it's it's fine to um, release, but what did you do to follow up? You know, did right. you, did you develop a safety plan for right. the family? Did you tell them like, look at the first sign of delusion, you have to understand that's, that's the beginning of a risk that he could actually harm someone. So right. I need you to contact us or I need you to call these people. In um, Washington state, you can, somebody can be released from the hospital and still be on, a, I think they still call it an LRO, least restrictive order wherein they're compelled to, say, receive antipsychotic medication by injection. Right. Yeah, I think you can still do that. Yeah, which makes sense, right? It's like, well, you're not hospitalized, which is great, but you're not completely free to behave. There's a recognition of the vulnerability uh, for yourself and also for the people around you. Right. And so there are a lot of things that can be done, and I wonder if the psychiatrist in the hospital didn't do all of those follow-up things. Maybe. And that's why the jury found that the psychiatrist in the hospital was liable for for the death. Um, well, this was fun, Bob. I, I have so many other cases I want to go over with you wow. in which people got sued successfully. <laughs> so I guess I'll just have to table this schadenfreude <laughs> for another time. Uh, thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself and avoid uh, stupid as a stupid does because... You deserve it. So does everybody else.